Well, howdy there, folks. Today is January 24th, 2022, and it's Heather here. I'm back with another episode of my audiobook podcast for my novel, Strike Boat. And just a general comment, it is cold here and snowing and blizzarding. It's a typical January day in Canada. And what is not typical is that right now, uh, truckers from across this country are converging in our capital in Ottawa. And uh, what they want is an end to restrictions and an end to mandates. And they are standing up for our freedom. And I would like to just point out that when I was writing Strike Boat, when I got to the particular part that I'm about to read today, it does cover some of these elements. Um, I knew that I wanted supply chains and truckers and our rolling warehousing system upon which we rely to be featured in this novel. You're about to hear a little bit more about that as I go into chapter 11. And the other segment that is important I think to our national conversation actually our global conversation that we are having around the world right now in terms of COVID and the policy responses that have been implemented worldwide is the part that the press has to play and so also upcoming in this episode uh, we will be introduced a little bit to a behind the scenes look at the press side of things and we're going to get started on chapter 11 where we meet a new character named Jamie and her cameraman Morty. Jamie is a reporter for the CBC and we meet her and her cameraman Morty. So with that let's get started. Chapter 11. Jamie. Jamie Sinclair, the CBC reporter, looked at her watch the spot they'd come to do went live in five minutes. Just a little while longer, and I can get this over with. She didn't really understand why the network was so keen to cover this. It was glorified public relations, really, she thought, as she studied Fallon's chiseled profile in the makeup mirror while the attendant dusted powder over his cheeks. It wasn't exactly the kind of hard-hitting journalism she had always pictured herself doing, but at least it was something. With the corporatizing of the news industry over the past few years, eliminating all but a few mainstream media jobs, she knew that she was lucky to even be working. By that same structure, if the top brass intervened like they had today and sent you on a story that they wanted covered, there was no choice but to cover it, no matter how inane it seemed to the reporter. And this one seemed pretty inane. She looked at Fallon philosophically, trying to see things positively. Then her eyes narrowed. Is that, is that cocaine residue? Disbelievingly, Jamie glanced at the makeup attendant. The young woman had noticed it as well. She dipped a cotton swab in alcohol and wiped off the cocaine from around Fallon's nostrils. Jamie widened her eyes a tiny fraction at the girl, who stifled a smirk and went back to her business. Jamie pulled out her own compact mirror, touched up her lipstick. Yep, J 
Just another run-of-the-mill rich boy ass-kissing session. Might as well pucker up and get ready. She reviewed the scripted questions she'd been given in her mind. To her, the questions were so transparently slanted to make Fallon come off as some kind of superstar that she wondered how she would even be able to spit them out without vomiting. But there they were, and she had no choice. While she was reviewing them, a gorgeous young black woman rushed over to her. Jamie had time to register the tasteful outfit and perfect lip gloss before the woman grabbed Jamie's hand and started pumping vigorously. Oh, Miss Sinclair, Deb gushed. I'm your biggest fan. My name's Deb Hathaway, and I've been watching you since you were in radio. Oh, (laughs) I mean listening to you on the radio. My, oh my, where is my head at? I just wanted to come over and meet you and tell you I'm a huge fan. The woman glanced behind her at the HR manager, Jeff Sims, who was hovering nearby, and then widened her eyes meaningfully at Jamie. Um, thanks? Always a pleasure to meet a fan, said Jamie awkwardly. Jeff Sims, the HR manager, strode closer. That's nice, Miss Hathaway. Now move along. We're about to start. He steered Deb a quarter turn away from Jamie Sinclair and faced her towards the aisleway. He stopped short of actually giving her a little shove in that direction, but it was implied. Deb was grinning furiously, still grasping Jamie's hand. Behind Sims's back, Deb curled the reporter's fingers around a tightly folded square of paper, then winked and let herself be led away. Oh, don't worry, I'll be off now, Mr. Sims, sir. I just wanted a chance to meet her, and now I've had it. Like I said, I've been a huge fan. Jamie frowned. There had been a message in the woman's eyes. She was almost sure of it. She became aware that she was holding something and looked down to discover that in her hand was a folded square of paper. She crossed to the makeup desk where her handbag was. Plunging her hands inside, she used the flimsy cover to unfold the note. There's going to be a wildcat strike. Fallon is responsible for the earthquakes. Search this hashtag. Get off the Bruce. Watch the YouTube video. We're going to confront him at the tire install station. Bring your camera. Jamie reread the scrap of paper. How could Fallon be responsible for the earthquakes? If it was true, it was the kind of tip that Jamie had been waiting for through her entire journalism career but it didn't appear to make a lot of sense. And anyway, she wasn't allowed to ask about it anyway. I have to stick to my stupid, scripted, boring questions, Jamie thought. She crumpled up the paper and threw it in the trash can to her right. Still, she got out her phone and searched the link. As she hurried through the plant, Deb could hear the world wide cat. Sorry, I'm gonna start that sentence over with. My apologies. As she hurried through the plant, Deb could hear the word wildcat being whispered about from lip to lip. The place was buzzing with a nervous energy. She passed a handful of workers clustered around a smartphone screen. On a hunch, she veered towards them just in time to hear a jumpy looking woman speak. Is it true there's going to be a wildcat? A few shrugs were the extent of the response. Deb joined the group and cleared her throat. It's true. 
She glanced at the screen, pleased to see that they were what they were looking at was Anderson Arthur's slideshow. Everything that video says is true. They're getting the gas that runs these cars by blasting underneath the lakes. This area is going to flood. A welder named Kimmy Pumbleton put a hand on Deb's arm. But how can you know a thing like that for sure? A wildcat strike with Fallon in the building? That's putting our jobs on the line. Deb looked her in the eyes and saw the conflict. Kimmy knew it was the truth deep down. She just didn't want to know because knowing made it necessary to act. At least when you're working for the bad guys, it does. Deb sighed. Did you feel the quakes this morning, Kimmy? Did you see the news? A crack across the Bruce Peninsula. It's splitting from the mainland. Do you think that's a coincidence? She pointed at the screen. These guys caused it, Kimmy. This morning, I was with the mayor. Vic and I were there to do that check presentation thing, remember? She got a copy of the slideshow sent to her in error, and she put it on the net. They sent a man to shoot her, and guess who showed up to help him? Lawrence Fallon did. I saw him with my own eyes, and then he shot at us. With the gun that Fallon gave him, Kimmy, me and Victor. And now Fallon's here, inside the plant. We're going to confront him, and if it's true, we walk. While the press is here. People have a right to know this, Kim. That's all. Kimmy frowned. At least we'll get our strike pay, she said glumly. And Deb remembered that Kimmy had two daughters she was putting through university. You guys will, a female temp said fiercely. How am I supposed to pay my rent and feed my kids? Deb frowned. Look, I don't even know what your name is. It's Chelsea, the girl broke in, shaking her long blonde bangs out of her eyes. Something about that motion jogged Deb's memory. She'd seen that gesture before. This was the girl she'd recorded that the spyware was filming, the one with the photo the two blonde children in her locker. Look, Chelsea, if we don't stop these assholes now, who will? How many kids you got? Two. Girls? Boys? How old? Chelsea held her gaze for a moment, defiance flaring in her eyes. Then she looked down. One of each. My girl's four, and my boy is two. Deb gripped her arms. If you decide to stand beside us today, do it for them. They've damaged the Great Lakes. That's your children's drinking water now and in the future. We may be too late to do anything about that, but we can hold them accountable for what they've done. If we get them to admit it, maybe down the road, some court will make them put things right again. In 20 years, do you want to tell your children that you stood by and let them do it? Or do you want to tell them that you took a stand? Chelsea's eyes welled up, but new resolve had appeared inside of them. You're fucking right I do, she breathed. Deb smiled at her. Okay, I gotta go. It's starting now, okay? Spread the word. Deb practically ran the rest of the way. She found Vic pacing outside tire and stall. Christ, you had me worried. I thought they grabbed you. Did it go okay? He jerked his head towards the nearest TV screen. She looked up. Yep, it's running the sales figures, and then we're up next. I got Jay to send a clip of the live stream. 
the footage showing Fallon, where he came to bring the gun. But I was in a rush, and I'm not sure I got that part inserted right. It'll have to be good enough. We're on. He pointed at the screen, which was showing the opening slide from Anderson's presentation. Right, she said. Here we go. The tire install station was a two-person job. Thrusts rolled into the station, and workers on both sides used hydraulic lifts to pull the vehicle's tires out of the conveyance mechanism that brought them to the line. The station was computerized. To keep the line moving at optimal speed, it gave them only 50 seconds to complete their process. Once the front tire was in place, they used an impact gun to run the lug nuts on, then they repeated that process with the back tire. If at any point in the process, the computer didn't register the proper torque, the line shut down. There was a temp worker on this side of the vehicle. Vic tapped him on the shoulder. He was young, about 18, and he pulled his earbuds off and turned around. So, the name Blaze was stitched onto his work shirt. Listen, Blaze, this is a wildcat. I'm taking over. Go take a break. Get out of here. I'm going to stop the line, and trust me, you don't want to be here when the bulls run up. You got me? Blaze shrugged. He handed the controls to Victor. Okay, bro, but you better slam a tire on this one or the bells are going to ring. Dev shoot him away. We've got this, Blaze. Go tell your friends. It's starting. Blaze gave Dev a look that she hoped was respect. Then he loped away. Deb turned to Vic. You going to throw that tire on? Nope, Vic said. He released the handles and the lift assist drifted on its hydraulics, the tire it carried hovering like a mouth open in surprise. Vic vaulted up onto a skid piled high with flat boxes of lug nuts and cupped his hands around his mouth. Excuse me, folks, this here's the Wildcat. If you haven't seen the slideshow that's playing in the lunchroom, go watch it. We're stopping this here line until we get a chance to speak to Fallon. Vic hopped down. The thrust with one empty wheelhouse was approaching the end of the tire install workspace. A green light above the station switched to yellow. Down the aisle, an LED message board lit up with the words, Tire Torque Not Present. The yellow light above the station switched to red and started flashing. An alarm began to sound and then the line stopped moving. Deb felt a thrill course through her. In all her years of working at the plant, she'd never knowingly caused the line to stop on purpose. The team leader, Marvin Cheltenham, darted up, ducking behind a bin of parts. White shirts on the way, two of them coming past the car path, he hissed, then deked away, melting out of sight. The three-wheel thrust hung motionless, the flashing red lights bathing the exposed rotor assembly. Depp thought fleetingly of a car crash she once seen, and then the supervisors came. What's the problem, folks? It was Gary Brentman and Wilson Smythe, junior level managers. Something wrong with the conveyor? Smythe walked right past the floating tire and shone a flashlight into the conveyance mechanism. We are putting in a work stoppage. Vic took off his gloves and tossed them onto the floor beside him. There's a video on the internet that says you guys are getting the gas to run these thrusts from underneath the lakes. 
It says you've done a bunch of damage. And we demand to talk to Lawrence Fallon to find out if it's really true. You demand what? Harry Brentman gaped at Vic in shock, and then he snapped. He stalked over to the lift assist and grabbed one of its handles. Hauling it over to Vic, he tried to make him take it. Listen, you piece of shit. I don't know what you think you're trying to pull, but do it somewhere else, okay? I don't need this on my line. So put the tire on the car so the line can start back up, then go pull your shit on someone else's line, okay? Move. Around them, workers from further down the line, where the cars were also motionless, were being drawn to the commotion. They grouped around Vic. Vic held Brentman's eyes and crossed his beefy arms across his chest. No can do, sir. I'm afraid I can't help you. Brentman turned to Wilson Smythe, who everyone knew was Brentman's lackey. Go get Garrett, Brentman said. Go get Garrett and tell him we've got a situation. Smythe took off, and Brentman looked at Victor. Step aside, Vic. I'm putting you on suspension. Now get out of my way. That tire's going on if I have to put it on myself. He made a move to place the tire into the empty wheelhouse. Marvin Cheltenham quietly cleared his throat and stepped between Brentman and the motionless thrust. I can't let you do that, boss. This here's a complicated piece of equipment, sir. As team leader of this team, it's my job to make sure no one operates at what ain't had the proper safety training. Brentman was furious. He grabbed a nearby temp and hauled him toward the mechanism. Fine, you're trained to run this thing, ain't you? The young man nodded, eyes downcast. Good, now take here, take hold of this here lift assist and get that fucking tire on. Brentman screamed this right in the temp worker's face. The temp made a move to grab the handles, but, but Vic held up a hand. This is a work stoppage, and no one's getting a hold of this equipment while I got breath to fight. Nor me. Deb stepped forward, turned to stand shoulder to shoulder with Vic in front of the gaping wheelhouse, using her body to block the tire from being put on. She pressed her back against the waiting rotor and felt the lug shafts press her skin. She peeled her work gloves from her fingers one by one, Then holding Brentman's gaze, she dropped them to the floor. She crossed her arms. Unless you're going to shout the whole plant down, I suggest you get Fallon over here, pronto. Around them, other workers began to do the same. The sound of work gloves hitting rubber impact flooring pattered like the beating of moth wings. Soon there was a knot of workers 10 or 15 deep standing shoulder to shoulder around Vic and Debbie. Others were gathering in the lunchroom, watching the slideshow video on the TV screen and talking intently amongst themselves. Brentman glared at the growing knot of workers. Fuck! He whipped out his walkie-talkie and pressed the connect button. Sims, he barked, and then in a more respectful tone. Sorry, Mr. Sims, sir, but I think you need to come down here. The crackle of a voice came back as HR manager Jeff Sims responded. Brentman, what is going on down there? Tire install's been down for three minutes and Lawrence fucking Fallon's in the plant. Brentman winced. He glared at Vic and glanced around in desperation, singling out Chelsea, who happened to be standing to his left. 
You, he bellowed at her, pointing. Chelsea looked up hesitantly, chewing on one thumbnail. Yes? You're trained on this team, aren't you? Yes. Brentman smirked at Deb and Vic, who now had 20 or 30 workers around them. Brentman extended one arm horizontally and pointed his finger at the lift assist. Well, then go take hold of that assist right there and get that goddamn tire on. Chelsea flinched, the color draining from her face, but she didn't move. Brentman snapped his head around to face her. Move, he bellowed. Chelsea closed her eyes up tight, but didn't move. A pair of tears squeezed out from underneath her lashes. Then she slowly raised her eyes to look at Deb. When she saw the anguish in the young mother's eyes, Deb's heart went out to her. Chelsea doesn't know what's going to happen, Deb thought. All she probably knows is that her job is on the line, and that's scary. Scary for anyone, but for a temporary worker who happens to be a mom with two small kids, it's almost life or death. Deb raised her head a fraction and tried to communicate with her eyes that things would be okay. She thought that Chelsea nodded just a little. Brentman looked from Deb to Chelsea. Unbelievable, he muttered. He walked closer to Chelsea, and with his face an inch away from hers, he screamed, Get over there and put that goddamn tire on, or it's your job. He spattered her with spittle. Incredibly, he stomped his feet. There was a murmur from the assembled workers. You can't talk to her like that, Deb heard, and then a sudden inspiration struck her. She pulled out her smartphone. Chelsea, Deb called. Chelsea looked at her, and Deb hit play on the video she'd taken earlier. Have a look at this. These fuckers film us in the lunchrooms. Chelsea peered closer at Deb's phone. She saw herself in what she thought had been a private moment, touching her children's picture longingly. Chelsea's mouth dropped open and something in her hardened. She was a mother, and knowing that these people filmed her, recording her when she thought that she was free from scrutiny, in moments where she almost couldn't breathe, she missed her kids so bad filled her heart with iron. She turned an icy look onto Brentman. Then she raised her chin and said something that made Deb's heart sore. I believe they said they want to talk to Fallon, sir. The final word dripped with derision. The tears were gone from her eyes, and in their place, defiance radiated. Brentman blew a gasket. Security! I need security to the tire install station now. His face was purple, red. I'll have your ass hauled out of here for that, he hissed at Chelsea. She stepped around him and went to stand by Deb, who squeezed her arm in solidarity. It'll be all right, Deb whispered. Don't worry, we won't let anything happen to you. Bradman, the plant manager, Thurston Garrett, came to them over the walkie-talkie. I'm coming down there. Seven minutes. Your line's been down for seven minutes, Brentman. There better be a goddamn holocaust going on. Fallon's in the building, Brentman. Fallon. The color drained from Brentman's face. 
Yes, sir, he answered weakly. Something like that, sir. Deb felt a twinge of sympathy for him, but just a twinge. It's their whole way of doing things, she thought. Brentman would probably lose his job over this, but so what? He was one of them. A small fish, maybe, but he swam in the same water as the rest of those capitalist sharks. And if they didn't have to be so cutthroat, none of this would have happened in the first place. Why couldn't the prize-winning, environmentally-friendly vehicle actually be environmentally friendly? Because that was smoke and mirrors, just another lie to make them money. Her lips thinned as she thought back to the conversation she'd been having earlier with Vic. Not one more, he'd said. Not one more vehicle until we know the truth. She cleared her throat and faced the other workers. Vic and I appreciate you people standing by us, she began, her voice booming up from somewhere deep inside her. Turns out the vehicles we build aren't so environmental after all. She leveled a glare at Brentman, who rolled his eyes. So I say, not one more thrust rolls off this line until we know the truth. Fallon's in the plant. Let him come and explain what he's been up to. Not one more thrust until we know. Who's with me? A ripple of agreement went through the crowd. Heads began to nod, but some of them didn't look too sure. But then a cry went up from a short distance away. Tire and stall had been down for long enough to stop the chassis line two rows over, where the workers were all unionized and had some of the highest seniority in the plant. These were workers who had been through the bad old days when the unions had been really active in support of workers' rights. They swarmed to Vic and Deb, a wall of burly workers that had been through wildcat strikes before, back when the union still had some muscle. In their dark blue coveralls, they may as well have been a wall of granite flanking Vic and Debbie left and right. The cavalry had arrived. Deb cupped a hand around her mouth. Not one more, she elbowed Vic, who joined her. Not one more. They chanted it again, and it caught on. Workers from all directions streamed towards them, their voices booming through the plant. And that was the scene that plant manager Thurston Garrett found a few seconds later when he rolled up on his golf cart with Jeff Sims. Ten minutes later, Bertram Walker put his right-hand turn signal on and moseyed his 18-wheeler over to the exit ramp. He was riding heavy down the 402, carrying a load of tires for the Fallon plant. His load was over the weight restrictions for his axles. He pointed this out to his boss at the warehouse and through teeth clenched tightly shut, his boss had told him that running overweight was the only way the company could make any money against the Fallon plant's demands. If they wanted the work, they'd roll the trucks overloaded. If not, the contract would go to someone else. Bert eyed the line of trucks waiting to turn into the plant and sighed. He'd rolled the load out anyway, but the conversation wasn't sitting well with him. Not my problem, he thought, inching his way through the intersection. The load was hard to maneuver. He made it through the interchange, barely, by snugging the nose of his cab up tight against the arse end of the transport truck in front of him, then frowned, shielding his eyes with his hand. He peered ahead. 
Transport trucks were backed up from the plant all the way out to the entrance and into the interchange with their flashers on, and none of them appeared to be moving. Balls. Bert Grant glanced in his rear view. Already two more trucks had come to a stop behind him. At this rate, they'd be backed up onto the off-ramp in no time, with shift change coming on if the backlog didn't clear. The thousand or so employees coming off the 402 to start their shift would be down to just one lane. Must be something going on at the plant, he muttered. He picked up his lukewarm coffee, took a swig, then grimaced. Rolling down the window, he pitched the remainder out onto the median. Shoving the empty mug back into the cup holder, he stuck his head out the window to peer up the line of transports ahead. Toward the front, he saw another trailer from his fleet. Is that Clayton? He squinted at his wristwatch. If that's Clayton, he was supposed to have been in, unloaded, and gone ten minutes ago. If that was Clayton up there, still waiting to turn in, things were backed up worse than he had thought. Bert called Clayton. Yellow. Hey, Clayton, that you up front? What's going on? They blow a droplifter again? Don't know. Nobody's talking. I can see Abdul ahead of me, still back in, that dog. I'm going to do that sentence again. Sorry, guys. Hey, Clay, that you up front? What's going on? They blow a droplifter again? Don't know. Nobody's talking. I can see Abdul ahead of me, still backed in at dock 88. Chatter up this way from the other drivers is that something big is going on. Bertram chewed this over. Inside dock 88, an automated conveyor mechanism from in the plant entered the backs of the truck trailers and pulled the racks of tires off, drawing them into the plant across an overhead rack, which then fed them to the line. The conveyance had broken down before, but usually they got it up and running pretty quick. How long's it been down for? Shoot, I'd say maybe 20, 25 minutes at least. Some bitch said Bert, and Clayton laughed. One thing I do know, they don't get it up and running soon. Old Abdul up there is going to be pulling in some overtime. That was supposed to be his last load of the day. He should be back at the warehouse clocking out by now. Bert scratched his chin. Their co-worker, Abdul, was ribbed a lot for being a newlywed. His wife, Jamila, was expecting their first baby any day. He eyed the line of trucks again which were indeed now backing up down the off-ramp and onto the 402 itself. A brief but uncomfortable thought went through his mind that it might not be all that easy to get out once things got moving again at this rate. You talked to him yet? Nah, I was going to call him, but I figured if the tire conveyor's down, there's apt to be so much management around that dock that he'll be yes-sirring and no-sirring all over himself. The two of them chuckled. Hey, Bert, how far back are you anyway? I can't see from here. That lineup stretch as far as Hickory yet? Shit, it's worse than that. I'm in the goddamn interchange. My arse ends out in traffic. And behind me, it's backed up onto the 402. Going to shut down traffic altogether. They don't get this shit cleared up soon. Bert hung up, then eyed the line of transports he was trapped amongst nervously. He wondered how much weight was sitting on the overpass, peering down at the westbound lanes of the 402 beneath him, 
He decided that he didn't want to know. Jamie Sinclair heard the chant start up and was intuitive enough to know that this was not business as usual for the plant. The lines had stopped moving. Workers were flocking to the area where the chant was coming from. Not one more, it sounded like. Then there was the blow-up she had seen. Moments earlier, Jeff Sims, the HR manager, had received a call on his walkie-talkie. A heated exchange had followed. More like he exploded, Jamie thought. When the call had ended, Sims had jumped onto a golf cart, looking sour, then sped off, leaving her and Fallon unescorted. A pair of temps rushed by her, whispering, and Jamie could swear she heard them say the word wildcat. Jamie's ears had perked up at that one, her thoughts returning to the folded square of paper that the lady, Deb, had given her. That note had mentioned a wildcat. She frowned, considering, and when the next worker passed her, a man with the name Ed embroidered on his coveralls, she put a hand out to stop him. Excuse me, she said, flashing him a smile. Is that where they put the tires on, over there? Sure is, he winked at her. I'm heading there myself as it happens. You care to tag along? She took in the letters UAW, stitched on his other pocket, and played a hunch. Can't, she said, and rolled her eyes in the direction of where Fallon sat at the mirrored vanity that human resources had brought down for him. I have to stay with this idiot. Ed snorted laughter and moved on. Discreetly, Jamie looked down at her phone. She had opened the link that woman had told her about in the note, but she hadn't really had time to watch the video. She opened it back out now, surprised to find that it was trending on her Twitter feed. She spent through Anderson Arthur's slides and frowned. A ripple of fear went through her. She went to stand by Morty, her cameraman. Hey, Mort, you gotta watch this video. I think this story is about to become our lead. Something's wrong, and this guy's involved somehow. She nodded towards Fallon, who sat brooding at his reflection in the makeup mirror. I'm going to start a conversation with him, and if he goes over where that yelling's coming from, I'm going to follow. You come too, okay? I want you taping. Morty shrugged. You're the boss. We got time anyway. I heard one of the managers tell another one that the Green Insignia Awards team got held up on the highway. Traffic jam or something like that. Looks like we're going to be a while. Watch the video, she said, sending him the link. She watched him open it on his phone, connect his headphones, and hit play. And then she sauntered over and flopped down theatrically in the chair beside Fallon. Slipping off one of her fashionable high heels, she began to stroke the sole of her foot with her thumb. Phew, she said, crossing her legs prettily. She leaned back in her chair and looked up at Fallon. My feet are killing me. Mind if I sit here and chat with you a while? Seems like they're running a little bit behind. She rested her toes up on the edge of the desk and allowed her skirt to slide a little further up her thigh, noticing with satisfaction that this caught his eye. That's it. Take the bait, she thought. So you're, you're with the network, right? Fallon said. His eyes had made their way to the front of her chic blazer, 
coming to a halt at her cleavage where an ivory silk chemise tastefully covered all but the teeniest glimpse. She slid the fabric of her collar outwards along the ridge of her collarbone, widening the expanse of the V. His eyes followed the movement. I'm with the CBC, actually. You know, the network you guys paid off to get this interview today? She pasted a dewy expression on her face and beamed at him. I guess we'll have to wait until whatever the holdup is ends so we can do our on-screen. Mm-hmm. Beyond him, a cluster of management was converging in a huddle, and she distinctly heard Fallon's name. They were looking at him nervously and apprehensively. Things are getting interesting, she thought. Fallon shrugged again, oblivious. If they don't get things moving soon, I'm going to have to reconsider my management roster in this place, he frowned. It costs a fortune when this place sits idle, and right now I'd say I'm losing plenty. Jamie clucked sympathetically, laying a hand on his arm, and Fallon flashed an affable smile at her. Her phone buzzed in her purse. Excuse me for one moment, she said. I need to take this. She opened it up and found a text message from Morty, her cameraman. You bet this story is going to be our lead. I watched the video and sent it to the newsroom. If what that video says is true, this bastard's got some explaining to do. She stowed her phone away and leaned in closer, aware that the new angle afforded him a much better view down her blouse and that this did not slip his notice. It must be very difficult running a huge, successful company like this one. How do you manage to keep on top of things? He laughed. Oh, it's not hard. When you've got enough money, you can pay people to do all the stressful stuff for you. Now you, for instance, you make all right money doing what you do or what? She rolled her eyes. I wish. I'm basically just a glorified intern. Got another job on the side to pay the bills. She frowned at the clock. Actually, if things don't get moving here soon, I'm going to be late for it. Do you? I hate to be pushy. I know you're incredibly busy, but do you think we could ask someone how much longer it's going to be? He cleared his throat. Well, I am the owner of the company, after all. Come with me. We'll go rattle a few cages. He winked, jumped lively to his feet, and proffered his forearm to her. She slid her shoe back on her foot and took his arm. Together, they walked over to the knot of management, and Jamie widened her eyes at Morty, who swung his camera around and started taping. Walter Jennings frowned in disbelief. The news footage was taken from a helicopter following the divide that stretched across the Bruce Peninsula. Fires had broken out in several places, spewing ashy smoke into the sky. Suddenly, the news reporter pressed her headset tight against her ear to listen, and when she spoke again, Jennings blanched. I've just been given a message from the control room. It looks like a hashtag has been trending on social media all morning, running a video that's telling people to get off the Bruce. Let's go live to that now. The screen shifted to the news desk, where a young anchorman sat with a screen behind him, running Anderson's slideshow, telling the world what Flag had been up to. The anchor was giving commentary. 
The video talks about a microfracking mechanism. Fracking in southwestern Ontario hasn't been approved on the Canadian side of the Great Lakes, but according to this map, it looks like there are frac sites operating all throughout this area. On screen, a map labeled Manico Frac Sites depicted a little cluster of red pins across a map that was labeled Evac Zone, a map that was supposed to be privileged information. When the anchor commented that the slideshow had been uploaded from the Mount Bridges YouTube channel, Jennings snapped. Fuck! He screamed, then picked up his glass of scotch and hurled it against the wall. It shattered, spraying ice and amber droplets. Cynthia was to blame for this, his daughter. He stood up, tucked his thumbs into the belt loops at the back of his suit pants and paced his office. All those years, he thought, all those years of playing my cards exactly right and then my own fucking daughter goes and blows it in one morning. He strode to the door and threw it open. He stormed down the hall to Cynthia's office and barged in, bellowing like a wounded moose. It's on the fucking CDC, he roared. Thanks to you and your goddamn slip-up, Anderson's fucking slide deck is on national goddamn television. I'm fucking out of here. This is going to take us months. Hell, years to cover up. And it's all your fucking fault, you stupid bitch. He marched to where she sat with a carefully neutral expression on her face. An ugly sneer curled up his lip, and then he reached back and smacked her once again, and hard. Her head rocketed backward. He turned his back on her and walked to the window, leaving her to blink away her tears. A few pale strands of hair clung to the corner of her mouth. She pulled them free, and her fingertips came away bloody. Probing the corner of her mouth with her tongue, she glared at her father, who stood muttering by the window. Drawing out her silver compact, she looked at her face. There was an angry red welt rising to the surface, but the worst thing was the cut that slanted down from the corner of her mouth, marring the perfect symmetry of her face. She held the compact close to see the wound in greater detail, then with her thumb, slowly and carefully wiped the blood away. She, she looked at the glistening smear of red on her hand, stared at it, her lip curled up, her expression eerily reminiscent of her father's. She felt the hatred seethe inside of her. Look what you did to my face. This better not fucking scar, she said. Fuck you. He spun around. What did you just say to me? I said, fuck you! Cynthia screamed it at him, then got herself back under control with a massive mental effort. Her voice dripped with venom. Get out of my office, you piece of shit. It was an accident, okay? I fucking flinched, okay? Thanks for nothing, okay? Now get the fuck out of here and leave me alone. You aren't helping anything. Fuck you. Jennings gaped at her. Huh, he muttered. After all I've done for you, get out, she tells me. Well, you know what, princess? You got it. You fucking got it, okay? I'm out of here. 
you stay here and deal with Cochrane on your own. I'm gone. He wheeled around and strode out of the office. A moment later, he passed back by the open doorway, carrying his valise, his trench coat slung over his forearm, and he didn't so much as look at her. She heard his footfalls echo down the corridor, and then the squawk of tires as his car peeled out. He was gone. He'd left her here. Her shoulders slumped. This was the life she had resigned herself to, she mused, dabbing anti-puffiness serum on her cheek. She dusted ivory powder over that and scrutinized her face in the compact mirror. It was going to bruise the next day, but the bleeding had stopped at least, and for now it looked okay. She heaved a sigh, wondering what she was going to do, and then the buzzer on her intercom went off. She scowled at the display screen. Summers. Great, she rolled her eyes. It occurred to her that she hadn't ought to screw things up today any more than she already had, and so she answered it. What? she snapped. Well, uh, Miss Jennings, ma'am, uh, it's Mr. Cochran. He's asked me to find those, um, those ladies that were here, Mr. Preston's, well, whatever. Mr. Cochran says he paid them to suck some, to perform a certain duty, and that they hadn't performed it yet. He wants me to bring them to his suite, but I can't find them. Cynthia sat back in her chair, her fingers tented in front of her face. So Cochrane wanted a little action, did he? She smiled a feline smile. I'll take care of it, she said, and hung up. She went into her personal washroom, flicked on the light, and studied herself in the full-length mirror. She slid her hands over her taut abdomen, turned sideways, and looked back over her shoulder at her backside, frowning at the thin indentation of panty line that marred its smooth perfection. Her makeup looked a little cakey over the slap mark, but from far away, she didn't think she looked half bad. She narrowed her eyes at her reflection and licked her lips. So daddy wants to play hardball, does he? She pursed her lips in a practiced, eat your heart out pout. Slipping out of her shoes, she slid her hands inside her skirt and drew silk hose and French made panties down her legs. Stepping out of both, she slipped her shoes back on, then turned her back to the mirror. Much better, she said aloud. The panty line was gone. She returned to her desk and called for a taxi, then picked up her clutch and counted out $5,000 from the stash of bills inside. Leaving her office, she headed to the guest suite and knocked lightly. The door opened, the blonde prostitute inside. Cynthia thrust the money out towards her. The blonde reached out and took it, looking at Cynthia warily as she put it in her purse. The brunette was just behind her, watching. Your services are no longer required. I've called you a cab. I trust you'll find you've been fairly compensated for your time. They gaped at her, and then the blonde jerked out a stiff nod of agreement. Good. Gather up your things and follow me. I'll show you where to meet your cab. When they were gone, she took a deep breath to still her racing heart. She composed her fingers, then headed to Cochrane's suite. 
All right, guys, I'm going to leave it there for today. Uh, wherever you are in this world, I hope that you are keeping your spirits up, keeping hope in your heart, and keeping your focus on the future where better things can happen. I know that there are questions that need to be answered as we come out the other side of this policy response to this worldwide pandemic that we've all been living through these last two years. And I just want to remind you that the path forward is love and compassion and unity. Stay free. All the best.